And let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. We're in John 15. We're going to start in verse 18, and then we're going to blow right past 16, verse 1, and we're going to finish in 16, verse 4. So this is God's Word, starting at John 15, verse 18. These are the words of the Lord. Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in the law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you, to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is God's word. Let's go to him now in prayer. O Lord our God, these are hard words. Hard for us to accept, hard for us to believe. I pray, Lord, that you would do once again a work of faith in our hearts by your Spirit. I ask, Lord God, that you would speak to us, for we, your servants, are listening. Hear our prayer, for we offer it in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the King through whom we have the gift of everlasting life. In his name we pray. Amen. Every year, Open Doors, a ministry about persecuted Christians, publishes a watch list detailing the 50 places in the world where it is the most dangerous to be a follower of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here are the top 10 worst nations on earth for Christian persecution. Some of them might be very familiar and expected to you. Some might be unexpected to you. The list goes as following, the top 10, North Korea, Somalia, Yemen, Eritrea, Libya, Nigeria, Pakistan, Iran, Afghanistan, and Sudan. I was surprised to learn that India ranked higher on the list than Saudi Arabia and China, And I was surprised to learn that it is safer to be a Christian in Turkey than it is to be a Christian in Mexico. That was surprising to me. 
Here are some more statistics from the list. Worldwide, more than 360 million Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ, suffer persecution and discrimination for their faith. One in seven Christians are persecuted worldwide. 14% of all Christian people on this earth are persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. One in five Christians are persecuted in Africa. And two in five Christians are persecuted in Asia, 40%. Globally, 5,621 Christians were killed for their faith in Jesus Christ this very year. And 90% of those were from the nation of Nigeria alone. The number of Christians martyred for their faith in 2023 was 80% higher than it was five years ago when 3,066 Christians were killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, in reading those numbers, which are shocking and surprising to me, you would think that many of our brothers and sisters around the world would walk around with their heads hung low, in fear, in trembling, worried constantly about their, their physical safety. But, in fact, the opposite is true. As we read the testimonies of our brothers and sisters around the world in the most persecuted nations on earth, you find strength and honor and love and joy permeating the churches. Here are some quotes from our persecuted brothers and sisters. Gongji from North Korea says, Step by step I realize how the Holy Spirit leads my life. I have decided to put all things in God's hands. Mohammed from Yemen says, When I came to faith, I thought I was the only believer in Yemen. For a long time, I didn't know any other Yemeni Christians. Pastor Gideon, who was imprisoned for six and a half years in Eritrea, said, Even when we are suffering, we rejoice. Our happiness is not based on what we have or do not have when people see that. They accept Jesus. Now, perhaps it is not surprising to you that the United States did not make the list. Many of us have a hard time understanding what it would be like to be arrested and imprisoned and even tortured for our faith in Jesus Christ. Throughout our history in the United States, Christians have enjoyed a protected and, in many cases, a privileged status in our nation. In the old days, when my parents and grandparents were growing up, the Bible was taught in Christian schools. I'm sure some of you may remember a time when you were taught the Lord's Prayer in Christian schools. Prayer was encouraged among students, and biblical morality was simply assumed as the way things were. There are still remnants of that in our culture, but I think it's going away. I think that our Gen Z and Generation Alpha Christian brothers and sisters, our elementary and middle school and high school students, are going to grow up in a world that is very different than the world in which we grew up, a world in which Christianity is increasingly viewed with hostility and suspicion. I hope I'm wrong about that. 
but I fear that someday there will be another pastor preaching another sermon in this very pulpit from this same text, and that young man will preach a very different sermon than I'm going to preach today. A sermon not about what might happen or what is happening in other parts of the world, but a sermon based on what is happening right now in his own day, in his own life. Again, I pray that I am wrong, but it seems to me very pointed and foolish to assume that religious liberty and toleration and acceptance is the default setting of the human heart. That because it's always been this way, that it will always be this way. As Jesus said to his disciples, all of whom were martyred, all of whom were martyred, except for the apostles of John. Verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now that's a very sobering thought, is it not? To be a Christian is to be misunderstood, to be maligned, and in worst case scenario, martyred for your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. To be a Christian is to have both a deep connection to Jesus and his body, the church, and also a deep sense of alienation from the world around us. Again, as Jesus taught his disciples in John chapter 16, verse 33, I have said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. That's the good news of the gospel. In Christ, our sins are forgiven. In him, we have peace. But then he continues, in this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. For I have overcome the world. Because the gospel is true. Because we've been reconciled to God the Father through Jesus, the Son of God, who died on the cross in our place. Because that's true, someday our sorrow will turn to joy. Someday our tribulation will turn to peace and our suffering will turn into celebration. In this world, we will be hated. In that world, we will be loved. Now, on one level, this is a message for all of us. Jesus says that the world's hatred is as universal as it is inevitable. So I think all of us on some level can relate to what Jesus is saying here. But I think it's especially a message for our young people. And when I say young people, I specifically mean people who are younger than me. (laughs) My friends, the Christian life is hard sometimes. It is. But it is worth it. You are going to face, if you're not already facing, levels of hostility that many people my age and older have never experienced. You are going to need more courage than we have ever needed. Some of your friends, your Christian friends, people who grew up with you in the church, going to youth group, going to college group with you, are going to deconvert and deconstruct their faith. 
You're going to be asked hard questions by people who are not interested at all in biblical answers. You are going to hear messages from and counterfeit solutions from people who are standing in the pulpit, pulpits of Christian churches, who are going to encourage you to maintain peace with the world by compromising with the world, as if we can ultimately receive peace and joy by abandoning the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. It can all feel very overwhelming to all of us. Until we remember that Jesus wins. He won when he died on the cross and rose again. He will win when he returns as we confessed in our words of assurance to make all things new. And he is winning right now in every city, in every nation, in every place where the name of Jesus is believed upon for salvation, is praised and glorified by the church. He's winning in Pensacola. He's winning in in cantonment. He's winning in Africa and Asia and North and South America. He's winning in post-Christian Europe where there are many Christian churches that are growing and thriving and loving and serving their neighbors. There are active Christian ministries on college campuses. There are active Christian ministries behind prison walls. There are active Christian ministries in hospitals and nursing homes. As the writer of Hebrews reminds us, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So how do we endure the hatred of the world? Well, according to Jesus, we have to be ready for it. And the only way for us to be ready for it is to understand it. And so, if you're taking notes today, I want us to make four observations about the world's hatred of Jesus and the church. If you believe in Jesus, if you have been baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if your kids have been baptized into the church, here's what you need to know. First, the world's hatred is inevitable. It's going to happen. We're going to talk about why. Second, the world's hatred is impersonal. It's impersonal in the sense that it's not really about you. The world hates you to the extent that they hate Jesus. It's ultimately about him. Third, the world's hatred is variable. Sometimes people are physically persecuted for the Christian faith. We see that all around the world, and that does sometimes happen here in our own nation. Oftentimes, persecution is emotional. Both are mentioned in this passage, and we'll talk about what that is, what that looks like. And fourth, the world's hatred is surmountable. It can be endured and overcome because Jesus wins. And in a sense, that's what the whole Bible is about. Inevitable, impersonable, variable, and surmountable. All right, you ready? All right, let's take a closer look. First big idea, the world's hatred is inevitable. Verse 19, Jesus says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world 
hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, and they did, they did persecute Jesus, they will also persecute you. Now, there's no sense in these verses anywhere that persecution might happen or maybe it won't happen. You know, that maybe the world will hate you, uh, you know, but maybe the world will love you. Who knows? The world's hatred, according to Jesus, is a given. Persecution in one form or the other, and we'll talk about that later, what it looks like, persecution is a given. If you are a Christian, the world will marginalize you, misunderstand you. Here's the logic according to Jesus. The world hated me. If you're a Christian, you are united to me by faith. Remember, we talked about it last week. I am the vine, you are the branches. Therefore, if we are united to Jesus, who is hated by the world, we too will experience the hatred of the world. I think that's what the Apostle Paul was talking about when he wrote his final letter to his young friend, Pastor Timothy, and he said this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Even if we're nice, even if we're friendly, even if we go out of our way to be kind and hospitable to our friends and neighbors, this is going to happen. Think about about this. The world hated, to a certain degree, Mother Teresa. Christopher Hitchens, famous atheist, actually wrote a book attacking Mother Teresa, who spent her life uh, ministering to the poorest of the poor, disease-ridden people in Calcutta, one of the worst places on earth. They hated her. Do you think you can ever do enough good, that you can ever be nice enough or kind enough or charitable enough to earn the approval of the world? You can't. Why? Because as Jesus taught us, I am the vine and you are the branches. Christianity isn't merely a philosophy. Christian isn't merely a moral code, a list of do's and don'ts. Christianity isn't even a a private mystical experience. It's a whole new way of life. To be a Christian is to have an organic, life-giving, life-changing relationship with our holy creator God. As Christians, we draw our life from him. We have, in a sense, been uprooted from our old way of life so that we can be engrafted into the vine, into Jesus. As Christians, we have not been converted to a new way of thinking or a new way of loving, though we have been converted to those things. We have been uh, converted to a new way of existing and grafted into the vine. And so as Christians, we think differently about work. We think differently about success. We think differently about the meaning of life. We think differently because we ask different questions and we get different answers. We may do some of the same good works as our unbelieving friends and family members and praise God for his common grace that we do. But we do the works that we do for different reasons than our unbelieving friends and family members. We do the good works that we do not to bring glory to ourselves or not even to ultimately make this world a better place. We do the 
the works that we do in gratitude for the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ. We do the works that we do, the good works of loving our neighbors so that we might glorify God, the God who created us and sustains us and died on the cross for us so that we might have everlasting life. The unbelieving world simply cannot understand that. The unbelieving world doesn't understand that. And in some cases, unfortunately, the unbelieving world simply does not want to understand these things. We, we speak entirely different languages. We're often talking past one another because we live in entirely different worlds. My friends, if you are a Christian, if you're trusting in Jesus for your salvation, as an American Christian, you have more in common with an African Christian or a Mexican Christian or a Middle Eastern Christian than you do with members of your own family. People who grew up in the same household with you who do not profess faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because the thing that animates you, the thing that gives you life and joy and peace, the core of your existence, the core of who you are, the vine, is simply beyond their realm of understanding. If we could reduce Christianity to being a nice person or being a good person and letting the world uh, define what being a nice person or a good person is, well then of course the world would love us as one of its own. If we could edit Christianity so that it agrees with the world's ethics and values, then of course no more hatred. But to do that, my friends, would be to cease to be a Christian. It would be to uproot ourselves from Christ. It would be to detach from the vine. Remember what Jesus said in Romans 15, 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Christianity without Jesus is at best completely and utterly pointless. It is, at worst, catastrophic. That's the first big idea. If you are in Christ, if you're united to Jesus by faith, the way branches are united to the vine, the world's hatred is inevitable. Second big idea, the world's hatred is impersonal. It's not about you. Verse 20 Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. In other words, if people hate you for being a Christian, don't take it personally. Don't be infuriated. Don't be devastated. It's not about you. It's about him. When people say, you're a bigot, you're a homophobe, you're narrow-minded, you're intolerant, all those things have been said to me and about me, even though I hope I am none of those things. 
on my best day, those, are, those in no way represent who I am or what I believe. When people hate you for being a Christian, and they will, in a strange way, it's a compliment. It's a compliment because it means that they can see Jesus in you. They look at you, they see a dim reflection of the heart of Jesus, and they lash out not because of you, but because they see a glimpse of him in you. If you don't look like Jesus at all in what you believe and how you live, well, then the world will leave you alone. As the saying goes, cats don't play with dead mice. Now, if you get this, if you get this, it will totally transform the way you interact with unbelieving people in the world. It will enable you to not only love your enemies, which again is hard to do, it will enable you to pray for your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you. See, if you take the world's hatred personally, you'll either be overwhelmed by anger or you'll be crushed by fear. You'll be constantly attacking the world or you'll constantly be hiding from the world in order to protect yourself. If you don't take the world's hatred personally, you are free to love the world courageously and compassionately like Jesus did when he loved the people who hated him. Not in word, but in deed. By giving his life on the cross for the very people who hated them. So that the people who hated him might experience the depth of his love. That's what the cross is all about. So when the world hates you, and they will, it's inevitable, don't take it personally. It's not about you. It's about him. Third big idea, the world's hatred is variable. Chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus said, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, an hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. Sometimes the world's hatred looks like physical violence. Sometimes it looks like murder or torture or false imprisonment. In some nations, Christian people are spit upon. In some nations, Christian funerals are broken up by the police. In some nations, Christian churches are, are uh, graffitied and vandalized, and in some cases, even burned to the ground. And sadly, in many cases, we as Christian people, the brothers and sisters of the friends who are being persecuted in this way, remain silent. Sometimes we can't even bother to pray for our persecuted friends around the world. May God forgive us for our indifference to their physical suffering. Sometimes the world's hatred looks like being put out of the synagogue. 
Sometimes it looks like parents disowning their own children. That happens in many instances when people leave the Muslim religion or even the Jewish religion. They are considered to be people who have betrayed their family members by becoming followers of Jesus Christ. Sometimes in our own culture, it looks like children cutting off their parents, no longer having contact with them. Again, more common in our own nation where we seem to not have a category for I love you and yet I disagree with you. I love you, but I don't like what you're doing because what you're doing is going to ultimately be harmful to you. And I love you too much to stay silent and pretend that the things that you're doing are not going to have uh, damaging consequences in your life. Sometimes it looks like being unfriended or blocked. In the first century, the synagogue wasn't just a -a once-a-week worship service. It was your whole life. It was your friends. It was your family members. And so to be put out of the synagogue was not only to be barred from the worship of God, it was to be disconnected from your community. It was to be disfellowshipped from your community. And all the pain that that entails. All your friends would be gone and you would be left alone. Now the question that comes to my mind as we think about this is how do we endure this? Now remember, all of these things that we're talking about, Jesus grounds all of this teaching in saying, this happened to me. They hate you because of me. They hate you the way that they hated me. Jesus was crucified not in the city, but outside the city. He was put outside the city. Physical violence was done to him. Nails were put through his hands and his feet. A crown of thorns were on his head. So Jesus endured this. How did he endure this? He endured it because he saw his pain as part of something much bigger than himself. He saw his pain as the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures and as an expression of God's sacrificial love for his people. Now, in a similar way, though certainly not in an identical way, we can rejoice in the midst of our suffering when we understand that our suffering is part of that same redemptive story. In Psalm 56, verse 8, David wrote this. He wrote to God, singing and pouring out his heart to God, You keep track of all of my sorrows. You have collected all of my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. Someday there will be chapters in your story that read suffering, pain, exclusion, insulted, hated, unfriended. But if you believe in Jesus Christ, the last chapter of your story will say loved, accepted, forgiven, adopted, welcomed into the family of God. Remember, my friends, the haters don't win. The persecutors don't win. Jesus wins. 
Someday we will live in a world where every enemy of Jesus and the church will be silenced forever. Someday we will hear the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Someday we will finish our rest, our race. Someday by his wounds we will be healed physically and emotionally forever. Fourth big idea, last one, we'll close with this. The world's hatred is surmountable. Verse 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. When we suffer for the sake of Jesus, when we suffer as the children of God, we are not alone. God has given us His Holy Spirit to strengthen, strengthen us in our time of need. When we're suffering, we can feel like we're all alone. Nobody understands. Nobody knows. Nobody's with me. The message of Jesus Christ by sending the Holy Spirit is that you are not alone in the midst of your suffering and pain. If you believe in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit in your life right now. He will give you the words. He will give you the courage. He will heal your heart. He will bandage up your wounds physically and emotionally. He will give you whatever you need in the exact moment that you need it. So that when you face the slings and arrows of the world you can stand tall as a son or daughter of the living God. It's, it's difficult to do. It is hard to love our enemies. It is hard to pray for the people who persecute us. Again, I'll go so far as to say that, humanly speaking, it is impossible. But you can do it because God can do it. And God is in you by his Holy Spirit. The hatred of the world, which seems so scary and big and monstrous, falls like Goliath. When Goliath faced down David, the future king of Israel, armed not with the might of this world or the weapons of this world, but armed with the promises of God. That's his promise. He's with you and will be with you until the end of the age. Final thoughts. If you are not suffering for Jesus right now, or if you, if you never suffered at all for the sake of Jesus Christ, I think you need to ask yourself some hard questions. And the question I want you to ask yourself is, do I look like Jesus at all? Are there any reason at all for the enemies of Jesus Christ to believe that I am on Jesus' team, that I am aligned with him in any way? Are you kind of secretly on Jesus' team? Because that's not a thing, okay? Jesus says that if you acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before God. If you do not acknowledge me before men, then I will not acknowledge you before my Father on Judgment Day. So again, Hard question, 
requires some introspection, but say, man, if I'm just floating along and everybody loves me and I have no problems at all with the world around me, the culture around me, do I look like Jesus? Let me challenge you to step up and step out in your faith. It's hard at first, a little bit scary, but remember, the Holy Spirit is with you. Second thing, final thoughts. If you are suffering right now for the sake of Jesus, remember that you are not alone. Because the world's hatred is inevitable, you are surrounded by other people who have endured similar things. And so when you suffer, don't run away from the church. Run to the church. Don't run away from the people of God. Lean in to the people of Christ. We've been there. We've done that. We're here to help. When I was a kid growing up, we used to watch black and white TV shows on KTLA Los Angeles. And one of my favorite shows was The Lone Ranger. I love The Lone Ranger. Great show. Terrible strategy for living the Christian life. Amen? If you think you're going to do it all alone, it, it's a, it, it ends badly. Okay? So you need the church. You need the people of God. You're not alone. Number three, if you're living a relatively comfortable life, remember to pray for people in other parts of the world who are suffering terribly for the name of Jesus Christ. If you don't know what to pray for or who to pray for or what to say, go to opendoors.org and you'll get a whole lot of information about what is happening to Christians around the world. You'll get statistics if you're a stats guy. You'll get personal stories if, you want, if you're a personal testimony person. There's all sorts of resources there. Great resource. Voice of the Martyrs. Persecution.com is the name of their website. Very helpful. You will keep up to date and be encouraged to pray for your brothers and sisters in Asia and in Africa where many, many people are suffering greatly for the name of Jesus. Finally, pray for our young people. Older people, and again, I'm thinking specifically about our silent generation and the boomer generation, the Gen X generation, that's me. My guess is that you have little to no idea what our young people are facing growing up in this culture. Again, it's a very different world than the world in which many of us, kind of the middle-aged and older people, grew up in. So please, pray for them. Beg God to keep them in the faith. Beg God to make them bold and courageous. Beg God to use his perfect love to drive away their fear. Ask God to remind them that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Ask God to strengthen them and then tell them that you are praying for them. Learn their names. Come up to them on a Sunday morning and say, I'm praying for you. What challenges are you facing this week? How can I take those things to the Lord in prayer? When the love of God becomes more real to them, it will become more real to you. And we will strengthen one another as we join with one another in prayer for God's strength. The world's hatred is very real. It is. But remember this. 
Nothing can compare to the love of God. And in the end, our light and momentary afflictions cannot compare to the eternal weight of glory of the love and grace of God. When we see Jesus face to face, all of our troubles will be washed away. To be a Christian is to be hated. But more profoundly than that, to be a Christian is to be loved. Let's go to God in prayer. O Lord our God, we thank you for your love. We ask that your perfect love would drive away our fear. Lord, it is so hard to let go. It is so hard to relinquish control of our lives. Lord, I speak for myself when I say that I want to control my life and my future so much, and I'm gripping so hard to hold on. I pray, Lord God, that you would allow me and all of us here to open our hands that we might receive your love. And that strengthened by your love, we would be able to run through a wall, that we would be able to walk into the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that we would be able to walk into the lion's den with our friend Daniel, that we would be able to overcome the world, not with anger or fear, but with love, with humility born from the gospel of your grace. Again, I am praying these things, God, because humanly speaking and without you, they are impossible. But with you, all things are possible. Lord, we, we believe. Help our unbelief. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.